Welcome to Writing It, a podcast by Ed Adams. The Square, episode 17, a novel by Ed Adams. Unbelievable. Karen began. Okay, you know I've been a loyal member of SI6 for many years. I've been put under pressure in the Middle East on numerous occasions. I was working with a guy called Fredrickson in Istanbul. He was supposedly from American intelligence, but he didn't have the moves that I'd expect. I thought that all along he had been wildcatted into the mission. We were to extract a small cell of American undercover agents. They were Muslim and had been able to work across the borders into Iraq and Iran, mainly intelligence gathering. Something had gone wrong and they'd been discovered. One of them was killed in Iraq, the most bloody turn of events conducted under the ISIL penal code. A beheading? asked James. That's right, said Karen, a televised beheading, to keep everyone else in their place. Claire shuddered. How awful. Yes, I felt responsible for the whole cell. It had been my job to place them in Iraq, and that was my duty to get them freed again. It's brutal in some of those countries, said Chuck. I've seen the hangings and beheadings in Riyadh too. They even push Westerners to the front in so-called Chop Chop Square to show them what happens if we misbehave. It runs at something like 150 executions per year. That's three a week. It's where the phrase blood money comes from. In a murder, the family of the murderer can pay the victim family blood money to atone for the crime. Yes, said James, and the testament that those to be executed utter, it brings us back neatly to Karen. No, I'm not going along the Shardar route, said Karen. Or before I know it, my head will be rolling several metres from my body. Claire grimaced at this. Can we get back to Karen's explanation? Well, I was threatened by, of all people, my own bosses, or should I say one boss in particular, Carson. He told me that I should take personal responsibility for the exfiltration of the agents, that they needed to be brought back intact and that they were valuable assets. To my eyes, they were burned assets. We could never send them back in such a scenario again. I arranged for an extraction from Istanbul. It was supposed to be very low-key. I took the team of them through the commercial airport on regular passenger tickets. We all arrived at Istanbul Havlamani, which is the main airport, and were checked into a flight to Washington. Nothing suspicious, regular amounts of luggage and no tools of the trade. Tools of the trade? asked Claire. Weapons or suspicious items in our luggage, replied Karen. Three of the guys were greeted at the airport by hospitality people. They said they'd been upgraded and would be able to fly in the front of the plane, first class. I was wary of this, but let it go ahead. The others were escorted to the business lounge at the airport. They were told they'd not made the upgrade, but that the lounge was the least they could do. That was another four, plus me, left to go in economy. It had all the marks of a trap, stated James, and Chuck nodded agreement. Karen continued, of course. The other four were delighted to spend some time in the lounge and followed the hospitality people. That left just me, the woman. It was over an hour to the flight, so I went to sit in the cafe area downstairs in the terminal. Then I noticed a black military truck outside the glass windows. All seven of the men were being loaded onto it. Karen continued. A man approached me. I was adrenaline out at this point and worried that this could be my green reaper. He was softly spoken, said his name was Fredrickson told me that the seven would disappear, but that I was to be left to go about my business. 
that the story of their disappearance would be of a lurid rounding up well before I got to the airport. In effect, the not men had not disappeared in my care. In return, he said he didn't want anything of me at this time, but he would be back at some point for a favour. He didn't say what it was or who he worked for. Chuck and James looked at one another. It was clear that they couldn't work out where Fredrickston had come from. Karen continued, Years have gone past since that event, but I still think of it every day. How seven men in my care were loaded into a truck and taken away to be executed. Then, around a couple of months ago, I was contacted by Fredrickson again. He said he remembered me and the touching scene at the airport. He now had something he wanted me to do. He explained that a Colonel Carson would be in contact. It was about a truck carrying, he said, missiles from Israel across Egypt. I was to do what I was asked by Carson, and I should expect to disappear at the end of the mission. He put it that if I did well, then I would survive and simply disappear. If I did badly, then it would be curtains. That's when I was asked to exchange the briefcase in the desert via a stringer, you James. I didn't think it could be that complex, so I agreed. Did they offer to pay you anything for any of this? asked Chuck. No, the only payment was their silence, my guilt and my life, including anonymity, answered Karen. I think Ramirez works for someone called Carson, said Chuck. We'd better be very careful with this information. Couldn't you have told someone somewhere, asked Claire, looking at Karen. I suppose I could have right at the beginning, but I was so scared then, having seen several good people put into a truck. It would have destroyed my service career too. I suppose that doesn't seem very important to most of you, but it is a very complicated life that we all lead in this line of work. Claire shuddered again. Jake looked at Bigsy. Don't you feel any remorse, asked Jake, for those men or what you have got them into now? It completely ran away from me, said Karen. Just think about it. I'm asked to pass a case to a lorry driver via a stringer. No big deal. The next thing I know, I'm caught up in some death threat to wipe out half of London. So, you do know the plans of Al-Aktar, asked Jake. Spell it, asked Karen. A-L space A-K-T-A-R, responded Jake. Al-Aktar, that's surely a bit of badge engineering, said Karen. You know in Arabic it means the most, but it's only a letter away from a Pakistani outfit called Al-Aktar, which have been Mujahideen supporters providing quartermastering under the guise of humanitarian aid. No, I don't know their plans, but I suspect they may have been produced as scapegoats for whatever threat has been laid down. So what do you know then, asked Chuck. You must have been told something to make sure you came back here. They told me that there were two consignments to be dispatched to London. A cylinder, which contains a toxin, and a set of smaller units, which are antidotes, mini syringes, if you will. They told me that the codes to activate were originally in the case which James was to hand over to the truck driver. So, we have a perfect storm, asked Jake. The cylinders carrying toxins, the arm codes, and the antidotes all bound for London. That's right, said Karen. I've seen each of the items being dispatched during today. What have we got, asked Chuck. Number plates, types of vehicles, endpoints. Nothing, said Karen. I've got nothing. I can see the dispatch from here in the hotel, on a TV monitor wired into my room in the hotel. I couldn't even swear that the dispatch was from Birmingham. At least we've got London, said Chuck. And we know the antidotes are individually RFID'd, said Bigsy. That should make them easier to track down.
Carson and Ramirez. Chuck's phone rang. It was Robert Alton. Hey Chuck, I wanted to let you know the latest. I've been in contact with the Pentagon, a Colonel Ramirez. He has been following your situation and trying to trace the trucks. I've told him about you and he is likely to call you sometime soon. Chuck commented, we need to find out whose side he is on. He receives direct orders from Carson, but may not be aware of Carson's role in all of this. Meaning what? asked Alton. Chuck continued, we've been with Karen. Karen? Alton sounded surprised. Karen's phone turned up at one of the truck rendezvous points. It made me wonder if she was still around. How is she? She seems fine. The shooter was working for her, and the hit was staged. She has told us about the situation, as well as about how she became implicated. Part of it has been to tell us that Colonel Carson is not what he seems. Karen has him pegged as an opportunist, working for a guy called Fredrickson. It also casts a shadow of a Ramirez. He appears to work directly for Carson. Alton continued, Many people have been wary of Carson for a long time. He acts with political will and keeps much of what he's doing secret. A lot of people in Washington don't trust him, although I don't think they'd expect him to be working for another state actor. I don't think Ramirez is aware of the depth on this situation. Carson was talking about sending Ramirez to London to supervise the operation more closely. I doubt whether Ramirez would go if he knew what was planned for London. Additionally, Ramirez has told me that Carson is planning to go to Frankfurt. Strangely coincidental? Alton added, Something else. I was out on a mission yesterday. We caught some local lads moving biopens around. We detained them just outside of Ashford. They were handing the devices over to a group of Arabs. Chuck said, This is very useful. I think we can assume that London is being targeted and that perhaps Frankfurt will be the centre for financial trading during the disruption. Look, we'll be in London soon. It would be best to meet with you there. How about Westminster? Certainly, replied Alton. He couldn't get much closer. Showdown Mechanics Karen asked, What about those biopens you mentioned? What are they? Don't you know? asked James. Karen shook her head. They're antidotes to the cylinders of nerve agent. They were smuggled in ahead of the main cylinders of nerve agent that were on the two trucks. Karen looked confused. What two trucks? Not the one I sent James to intercept. I was told this truck carried a missile. Yes, but that was another layer of deception. The truck was carrying the nerve agent. James had the unlock codes for the nerve agent, which was a binary. And the biopens? They provide the antidote to the nerve agent. Chuck could see that the situation was registering with Karen. She realised she'd been told something different and was having to re-piece the story together now. Wagons roll, Chuck declared. We're all going to London right now. Two and a half hours later, they were in central London and driving into a car park underneath College Green, adjacent to the Houses of Parliament. We could hardly be more central, said Chuck. Jake nodded agreement. He had driven the silver BMW hire car and Bixie drove the black one. Now they were conveniently parked, ready to meet Alton. Karen was in Bixie's car with James, who had told her in no uncertain terms not to attempt to escape. 
Chuck was already on the phone to Alton. We're here in Westminster. Can we meet along Millbank? Sure thing. How about Ravello's Coffee Bar? It's on the Horseberry Road, just up from MI5. Chuck said out loud, Ravello's. I know it, said Jake. Up from Lambeth Bridge. Less than ten minutes by foot. We'll see you there in around ten minutes, said Chuck. They walked to the small coffee bar, past the entrance to MI5, which Jake pointed out for everyone else. As they entered, Bigsy spotted a large group of tables and pulled two together. Claire went to the counter to order some drinks. As she returned to sit down, the whole group was sat around the two tables with a couple of spaces, which she assumed were for her and for Alton. We're suddenly quite a large group, she said, and at that moment Chuck stood. Robert, he called. Robert Alton smiled and looked over. He saw Karen in the group and his face hardened. Hello, Chuck, he said. Hello, Karen. We all thought you were dead. Not involved in some terrorist plot. Chuck, I brought a couple of friends who are waiting outside. Alton looked pointedly towards Karen. So what do we know, he asked. A terrorist plot to unleash US nerve gas modifications in central London. Financial manipulations. Carson involved. The binary to be mobilised with the codes from the briefcase. But we don't know where. That's about the shape of it, said Chuck. One thing, said Bigsy. We know the biopens were tracker-enabled with active RFID encoding. That's not enough to mean that GCHQ or anyone could track them down, but with a blast of radar at the right frequency, we should be able to spot a whole cluster of the pens. How would we achieve that, asked Alton. It sounds like mad science. Bigsy grinned. Not really. Your typhoons have advanced radar on them, usually used for targeting. It's called Paveway, I think. If several typhoons flew over London and used their targeting systems, we could possibly triangulate the RFIDs from the biopens. Hmm, I'm not sure if this is a plan, said Alton, nor am I certain that I could whistle up several typhoon fighters. They've flown jet fighters along the Thames in the past, said Claire, for big celebrations like royal anniversaries. Wait, said Jake, there's a meeting in London today, some kind of government financial forum. The World Financial Forum? Could the planes be a useful added feature? That might also be a clue, said Claire. Disrupt finance while the WFF are meeting in London? OK, said Alton. This could be my de career-defining moment. I'm patching through to Operations Centre to see whether we can rustle up some planes. Bigsy, I'll need you on the call to help explain all of this to the centre. Bigsy nodded. It's simple, really. Instead of the planes having their targets lit by a beam, they will be looking for the beam generated by the RFIDs on each of the biopen files. Those antibodies use active tags. That means they will be in the 433 MHz frequency range. I just hope that the Typhoon sensors can go down that low. We're almost into shopping cart territory. Alton could see that Bigsy was rapidly scrolling through what appeared to be a car brochure, but was actually a brochure for the $35 million Eurofighter Typhoon. We ideally need two sweeps, he added, one along the river and another in North London to South. That way we can triangulate the findings. Alton grimaced. It's not going to be that simple. I've been told we can have three planes and they can pass once along the Thames. North to South isn't possible, though. It cuts right across the Heathrow flight path. Go with it, said Chuck. We'll see where we are after the first pass. 
Walton said, no, wait. The RAF have come back with a counteroffer. It's a Sentinel R1, which is already airborne and could be over London in about 10 minutes. It can fly high and across London. The Sentinel, asked Chuck. They were used in Afghanistan against pop-up targets. I didn't know there were still any out there. Pixie was scrolling through more pages on the internet. I see, he said. They have a sensor bulge to track for targets. The radar it uses is quite an old system, but I suppose the active RFID is also quite old technology. Right, said Alton. We'll have one pass over with the Sentinel north to south, and then the scrambled typhoons flying up the Thames. It's our best shot at this. It'll all be over in about 20 minutes. They scrutinised a map of London and the intended course of the two sets of planes, trying to guess where the sensors might be located. Alton's phone rang. It's the feedback from the Sentinel. It's flown over London and it says it seems to be acquiring active RFIDs from 51.51 minus 0.08. That's over the city of London. They scrutinised the map. Bigsy typed the coordinates into his laptop. It seems to be St Mary Axe, he said. That's the Gherkin Tower. It is also where the WFF conference is taking place, added Jake. How accurate are these sweeps, asked Chuck. Without triangulation, they claim to only be within a couple of street blocks. Listen, said Claire. She ran to the door of the cafe and looked along the street. That was the typhoons. I saw them fly past the end of the road. They were low. As she spoke, Alton's phone rang again. We just got the typhoons reading. 51.513929 minus 0.0883573. They say it as a sample of the three. It comes out at the Bank of England. Jake looked at the map. Yes, that makes sense. The latitude of the Gherkin and the Bank of England are almost identical. Chuck stared at the map. So this road... Threadneedle Street runs between the two areas. I'm going to take a look. To everyone's surprise, Chuck walked out of the cafe and hailed a London black cab. Well, I suppose it is the fastest way to get there, said Jake. And pollution-free, now they are electric, added Claire. Right, now I think, Karen, it is time for you to say goodbye to these people and to come with my colleagues. You'll recognise the building we are taking you to. Karen nodded. She knew she'd run out of road. Alton stayed behind. Bank. Chuck arrived at the busy road junction in London known as Bank. The taxi driver dropped him off on the triangle of land adjacent to the Duke of Wellington statue. Ahead were the steps leading up to the Royal Exchange. The Bank of England is across the road there, said the cabbie pointing towards the front entrance. Chuck paid with his card and climbed out. There was an amount of disruption on the pavement. He could see that a new art installation was being installed on the concourse of the Royal Exchange. He looked again. There were several bearded workmen around in high-visibility jackets. He noticed they were of Middle Eastern origin. He could see the cylindrical artwork and realised that it was the missing canister which had been hastily sprayed with a dull metallic finish. Chuck called Alton. It's here. The canister. I think the antidotes will be in the truck that is parked in the sidewalk outside the Royal Exchange. Chuck looked towards the Bank of England. A canister was placed to be directly outside. If it was allowed to release the nerve agent, there would be a huge disaster in this part of the city. There was a news feed on an adjacent building. It was scrolling that an airstrike had been attempted on Heathrow. Chuck thought it signified the start of the terrorist distraction plan.
Ravello's Cafe had BBC News Channel scrolling across it. The latest updates were about the attempted attack on Heathrow. But that three RAF fighter planes had intercepted the missiles and then located the original attackers. No one explained why the three Typhoon planes were flying across that part of London at the right time. In Frankfurt, Carson was sitting in the control room waiting to start the trading scripts. He could see that the plan was unravelling. The diversion had been intercepted. He didn't know whether the nerve gas would work. He decided he would need to take over control of the London site. The London truck had been wired for a conventional bomb as well as the nerve gas. Carson had a phone number to trigger the bomb. He dialed it. Truck heard a phone ringing in the truck and ran towards the tube's subway entrance. There was an almighty explosion and the truck was lifted several feet into the air. The men who had been installing the artwork didn't live to tell the tale. The cylinder had been fractured and now a green fluid was leaking onto the ground from where it soon evaporated. Emergency sirens moved towards the area and a rapid response team dressed in hazardous material suits from the City of London started to cordon the area. Claire, Bigsy, James and Alton could see events unfolding from the television in Rivello's. As TV crews arrived, they noticed the fractured cylinder and wondered why it had not created more havoc. Alton was on the phone. Yes, good, clear, thank you. He turned to the group. We had to keep it quiet, but we'd swapped the codes to the cylinders when Chuck brought in the case from James. We swapped the arm codes for disarm codes. They still looked right and registered on the device, but they had the effect to neutralise rather than excite the cylinders. Do you mean Chuck raced all across London for nothing? Not quite. Chuck knew about the exchange of the codes. He also knew how much we wanted to get those terrorists brought in. Alton continued... I've just had it confirmed that we've also found Carson in Frankfurt. He was sitting in a financial trading desk waiting for the shares and financial position to go crazy. We can link him directly to the phone call which exploded the truck bomb. What about Fredrickson? asked Claire. No, we still don't know who he is or who he works for. Maybe when we have Carson we can find out some more. Don't forget we also have Karen Martin now. And Chuck? How is Chuck after the explosions around Bank? asked Jake. Alton looked stony-faced. Chuck would prefer to be gone, he replied. Later on today, we will find Chuck's green suit as the remnants from the explosion. OK, I hear you, said Bigsy. Chuck has disappeared on us again. I think he would like it to be thought that he had been blown up by the truck bomb, said Alton. James looked at Claire, who looked quite tearful. I get the impression you all like Chuck. A lot, answered Claire. Jake and Bigsy nodded. The Anchor Jake, Claire and Bigsy were sitting around a raised table in the Anchor pub. It looked out onto the River Thames, close to the city and central London. Tom Cruise made a movie that included this pub, said Bigsy. Well, it is kind of scenic, said Claire. What with that view of St Paul's Cathedral? I doubt whether his impossible mission was as complex as ours, said Jake. But I'll bet our mission is just as secret as anything that MI5 would run, added Bigsy. And we'll still be waiting to hear from our mysterious disappearing Colonel Manners again, said Jake. Or that Robert Alton, maybe. Or even James, said Bigsy. Hey, look, here comes Christina. We'll have to tell her all about this one.
She'll never believe us, said Claire. 